Good morning again. We are continuing on in our Harmony of the Gospel series, written so that you may believe, in which we're taking all four gospel accounts and we're doing our best to put them in chronological order so that we can look at the life, teaching, and ministry of Jesus. We started this series back up last week. So if you missed last, last week's sermon, I encourage you to go listen to it as I provided a, a quick catch-up on what the series has covered so far in the life of Jesus. Overall, our goal with the series is to echo what John wrote at the end of his gospel. John 20 verse 31 says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, in his name. So my hope and my prayer is as we continue this series that you and I may grow in love and knowledge of God and that by believing in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, we may have life in his name. So today we'll be in Mark chapter 2. So go ahead and open up to Mark 2 and if you need a Bible, we've got them there in the pew racks in front of you. Last week, we were at the very end of chapter 1 in Mark's gospel, looking at Jesus' healing of the leper. A man who was completely removed from society and life itself, who had no solution to his diseased skin and would be forever unclean. Somehow, he heard of and found Jesus. And in faith asked him that if he was willing, he could make him clean. And what we saw from that passage is that Jesus, as the Son of God, was moved with compassion for that man. He stretched out his hand and touched the unclean leper. A man who had forgotten what the touch of another human felt like. And Jesus said to him, I am willing, be clean. And immediately healed the man full of leprosy. It was gone. Just like that, he was clean. Rather than Jesus being made unclean by touching the leper, Jesus made the leper clean. Mark and the other gospel writers are teaching us who Jesus is who God in the flesh is, and why he has come. And what we saw with his encounter with a man full of leprosy is that he has authority. He has power over disease. This points back to one of the major themes in Mark and the other Gospels, the idea of the kingdom of God drawing near, with Jesus as king being on earth. His reign his sovereignty and his dominion has drawn near, has come near. And we saw in this interaction with the leper that this king has authority over disease. Immediately, he made the man full of leprosy completely clean. The leprosy had left him. Disease doesn't stand a chance before King Jesus. Jesus is demonstrating that he is the Messiah. He is the king. And that his reign and dominion has come 
to this fallen and broken world. And in this world, he has authority. Throughout the beginning of the Gospels, each Gospel writer is proving Jesus has this authority, whether it be over sickness or disease, demons or powerful storms, they are showing Jesus is no ordinary man. He is no mere prophet. He is not just some special healer. He is God in the flesh. And in these different accounts in the Gospels, the authors also show Jesus revealing the heart of God. He cares for the outcasts and rejects. He cares for the sinners, the sick, and the lame. Like the man with leprosy and soon many others, he is willing to heal any who come to him in faith. Which we will see another instance of this morning in our passage. So let's continue on in the life of Jesus this morning. Continuing to see who this Son of God is. By reading Mark chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. And then I'll pray. Mark writes, When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this day that we can set aside and come together to, to worship you, to gather as the body of Christ, to remember who you are, to sing songs together, to encourage one another in the faith, and to be uplifted and challenged by your word, Lord. Father, I pray that as we spend time in Mark's gospel this morning, that your spirit is doing whatever it needs to do within us. Lord, if it's reminding us of how great you are, how loving you are, I pray that your word and your spirit can accomplish that within us. If it's reminding us of how sinful we are, I pray that you can remind us of these things. Father, as we work through the passage this morning, I pray that you are accomplishing your will in each of us and that we can all, in the end, just be astounded and amazed at who you are and what you've done. That we can say we've never seen anything like this. 
Father, we love you, and we thank you that you first loved us. Pray in your name. Amen. So I've titled today's sermon, The Greater Healing. The Greater Healing. Our passage today, it occurs in Matthew's, Mark's, and Luke's Gospels. And as I said last week, John is kind of just doing his own thing at this point. Mark will serve as our base passage this morning, and we'll look to Luke's or Matthew's accounts to supply additional information when needed. So last week, we left off seeing Jesus' popularity increase even more as the cleansed leper proclaimed and preached about what Jesus had done, even though Jesus told him to keep quiet. In fact, he was so popular that he had, Jesus had to go out to the deserted places, like where the leper had previously resided, because there were so many coming to him. And even being out in the deserted places, people still came to him from all sides, from everywhere. So in our passage today, we see that Jesus has now returned to Capernaum, which is where he had been previously teaching, healing, and casting out demons before he went out into the whole region of Galilee. In Mark 1, verse 38 and 39, it says, Jesus said to them, Let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. He went out into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. And Jesus had already had the whole town of Capernaum bringing the sick and demon-possessed before he traveled around. Mark 1, verses 32 to 34 says, When evening came, after the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. So now, when Jesus returns to Capernaum with even more popularity and recognition than when he had left, it should only be a matter of time before people find out he's back and the crowds will begin to form which is the first thing that we see in our passage today. The crowds gather. The crowds gather. Mark 2, verses 1 and 2 says, When he entered Capernaum again, after some days it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. So we see there's been no decrease in Jesus' popularity. Within a short time of being home, people are willingly and uncomfortably packing themselves into this house to hear him. They were packed in so tightly there wasn't even room in the doorway. And these people, having many different motives, wanted to hear and see Jesus. And Mark says that Jesus was speaking the word to them. Jesus was carrying on his mission and purpose to preach to all about the kingdom of God and to repent and believe the good news, which echoes what he told his first disciples in Mark 1.38, that he may preach in the neighboring villages because that is why he has come. With this crowd packed into this house like a can of sardines, we'll see in our passage today that this account of a healing was different than what we saw last week with the leper. And a large part of this is due to the crowd that had gathered. Last week was pretty straightforward. An unclean, an unclean leper 
came to Jesus asking to be healed. Jesus healed him, and the healed men went out and told everyone about it. This week, not only do we have a lot of people in our story, but we have a new kind of people in our story. Luke makes this clear earlier on in his account than Mark does. Luke says in 5.17, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and also from Jerusalem. The word about Jesus has been spreading. We don't find out in Mark's account until after Jesus says a very authoritative statement that scribes were sitting there. But I want to mention this now as these new people in Jesus' audience take our passage from a typical healing account to one that has conflict and controversy dropped right into the middle of it. As Luke says, Pharisees and teachers of the law, or as Mark says, scribes were now in the audience listening to Jesus speak and preach. We will see in our passage today that they do not come to Jesus like the leper did or like the paralytic man will today. They have other motives and concerns in mind. And faith in Jesus is definitely not one of them. The Pharisees, teachers of the law, and scribes are typically lumped into the same group throughout the different gospel accounts, and they are not cast in a good light. Throughout the different gospels, we see them considered by society and the Jewish people as the most devout or pious because of their obedience to the law, their knowledge of it, their making up of new laws and traditions, and their demonstration of it all in the way they lived and the way that they dressed. But Jesus had other thoughts about them. At one point, he refers to them as whitewashed tombs, meaning on the outside, they look clean and great. But on the inside, they're dead. This religious group will go head to head with Jesus in each gospel account, trying to protect their control and power they have over the religious systems and that they have established and lead. So today's passage in Mark serves as the beginning of the questioning and challenging of Jesus from the religious elite of the time. And in Mark's gospel, it doesn't take long for the Pharisees and others to start plotting how to kill Jesus. We're in the beginning of chapter 2 right now, and by the beginning of chapter 3, this starts popping up in Mark's account. It takes just one chapter for these guys to want to kill him. So with this crowd gathered and packed tightly into this house, Jesus is preaching, scribes and Pharisees are listening, and you can almost feel the tension building, wondering what it will be that will set off this looming conflict in the room. And what better way to set it off than what's about to come through the door, or should I say, the roof? I've labeled the second part of Mark's account, a paralytic eternally healed. A paralytic eternally healed. Let's read verses three through five. It says, they came to him bringing a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
as Jesus is preaching to this packed house, a group of guys show up carrying their paralyzed friend on his mat. They get to the door of the house and there's no way inside. There's no way to get their friend to Jesus. At that point, it would have seemed impossible for the four guys to manage their way into the house and get their friend face to face with Jesus. Even the doorway is packed full. But what these men decide to do next is extraordinary. Knowing that Jesus is who he says he is, these men and their paralyzed friend don't just give up and go home. They know that if they can just find some way to get their friend to Jesus, he will heal them. They have complete faith. And this faith drives them to do what I never would have guessed. They are going to lower their paralyzed friend through the roof. Whether the house had an outside staircase that led to the roof, kind of went up and around, which was common in that time, or they got on top of another house and then climbed over onto this one, these four men get their completely paralyzed friend onto the roof. And then they start to dig. Roofs back then were typically thick, like feet thick, and layered with beams of wood spaced out on the bottom and then a mixture of different materials like straw and sticks and mud on top of that, and then tiles were placed on top of that. And we see these tiles being removed from the roof in Luke's account. So the four friends lift the tiles out of the way and begin to dig through this roof. And they are going to dig a hole large enough to lower their paralyzed friend through. As these men are working hard, you can see their faith and the paralyzed man's faith in action. They could have called off this whole mission of get their friend to Jesus, but their faith tells them otherwise. The paralyzed man could have told his friends, this is too much. Let's just go home. We'll figure something else out. But his faith and their faith lead them on to get him to Jesus. As the men get nearer and nearer to digging through, dirt, twigs, dust must just be falling on everyone in the crowded house below, right? And finally, the hole is large enough, the digging stops, and some large object is just being lowered down through. And as it gets closer and closer to the floor, everyone can begin to see this paralyzed man. And he is placed, as Luke says in 519, into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Talk about good aim. So the four men have done it. They got their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And like the leper in our previous sermon, we get to see Jesus come face to face with this paralytic. What will his response be? Debbie told me to get a tissue this morning. Good call, Debbie. Paralytics weren't in the same category as lepers, as being completely cast out and removed from society. But it was commonly assumed in their time that 
having a disease or a disability was a direct consequence of sin. We see this idea pop up in John's gospel. In chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says, As he, Jesus, was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? To them, disability implied sin was the cause. So we can see that although this paralytic wasn't rejected by society like the leper, many probably held negative assumptions about him and his paralysis. So how does Jesus respond to this paralyzed man? If we were going off of our knowledge of who Jesus is from our passage last week, we would have a good guess in that he would heal the man of his paralysis, right? But Jesus does something even more extraordinary than what the four men and the paralytic just did in our passage today. After seeing the paralytic lowered on his mat by his four friends down through this hole that they dug in the roof and placing him before Jesus, and Jesus seeing their faith says, Son, your sins are forgiven. What? Imagine being the paralytic. Like, wait a minute, what did you just say, Jesus? My sins are forgiven? Jesus, my friends and I came and did everything we could because we knew you could heal me. But what? My sins? Forgiven? He must not have known what to say. It leaves me speechless. Who is this man who forgives sin? Which we'll see is exactly what the scribes in the room are thinking. But they're not rejoicing over it. They have other concerns on their mind. But we'll get to them in a bit. Right now, this paralytic has been healed. And not physically, but eternally. Throughout the Bible, it is made very clear that we are all as sim humans sinful and separated from God because of it. We want to be God, deciding what we will or will not do and trying to control everything that we can. We don't want to be obedient to God in his ways. It's my way or the highway. And this is the sinful nature that resides within all of us. David hit it on the head in Psalm 51, verses 4 and 5, when he says, So you, God, you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. And this sinful nature leads us to do terrible things. Things that offend and break God's heart. Things that will result in us being separated from God eternally in hell as he judges us for our sin. Just like David says, so you God, you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. It's what we deserve. And so Jesus does something for this paralyzed man far more greater and miraculous than healing his physical body. He tells him, son, your sins are forgiven. It was nothing that this paralyzed man had done. 
He didn't deserve or earn this pronouncement from Jesus. But Jesus knew what this paralyzed man really needed. He knew what all of humanity needs. We need forgiveness. We need God's forgiveness of our sins. And that's ultimately why Jesus came. Mark records Jesus later in his gospel account saying, For even the Son of Man, Jesus talking about himself, for even I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus gives his life on behalf of all those who believe so that they may not perish but have everlasting life. In Jesus giving his life, our sins can be forgiven. The sacrifice has been made. We are washed white as snow. God calls us to believe what Jesus was proclaiming during his ministry. To repent and believe the good news. This good news is God forgives our sin for all who have faith in him. As Jeff read in our scripture reading this morning, Psalm 103 verses 8 through 14 says this, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He's removed our sins from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. And this is the good news that has come to this paralyzed man. Jesus shows the heart of God and his compassion and faithful love, telling him, your sins are forgiven. Jesus saw his faith and his friend's faith and tells him the greatest news ever. Your sins are forgiven. He is healed eternally. Just like last week, how the interaction between the leper and Jesus was a picture of our salvation so is this encounter between the paralytic and Jesus that we see today. This encounter between Jesus and the paralytic begs the question, when was the last time that you dwelled on God's gracious gift of forgiveness for your sins? Does it bring overwhelming joy and peace to your soul? Or has it become something that's not that big of a deal to you? I implore you, I urge you to check your heart on this. For the greatest gift, the greatest hope we could ever have is God forgiving us our sins and restoring our broken relationship with him so that we may be with him for eternity. That he can call us his sons and his daughters. Jesus stating this to the paralyzed man 
was no light matter. And the response of the scribes will show us why. In our third part of the passage today, we see Jesus proves his authority. Jesus proves his authority. Let's read verses 6 through the beginning of verse 12. But some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, Take your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. Here we see certain members of the crowd brought into the spotlight in Mark's account. The scribes, who are equivalent to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and represent the religious leaders, begin to question in their hearts what Jesus said. And here we see the beginning of the conflict and the controversy that falls right in the middle of this healing account. And what we see here is a strong contrast between the four faith-filled men and their faith-filled paralytic friend and these faithless scribes. Rather than seeing Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God who is ushering in God's kingdom and rejoicing, which they should have seen and known with their knowledge of the scriptures, but instead they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. And in their hearts, They accuse him of blaspheming because as they reason through it, God alone is the one who can forgive sins. To them, Jesus is not God in the flesh, but a mere man making the most horrible offense of all, acting as God. And in response, even though nothing has been said, Jesus demonstrates full proof of being God in the flesh. He knew what they were thinking. And he knew it immediately. Good old Mark and style right there. Immediately he knew it. No mere man could have known what the scribes were thinking to themselves. But Jesus, being God, knew exactly what was stirring in their hearts, which led him to respond. And in his response, he questions why they are thinking these things but does not deny the premise that they claim that God alone forgives sins. Which leads Jesus to his next question. He asks them, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Jesus poses this question because simply saying your sins are forgiven has no immediate physical proof, right? So although the greater statement is to say your sins are forgiven, the harder statement to say is telling a completely paralyzed man 
laying on a mat right in front of you in a crowded house full of people watching to get up, pick up his mat, and go home. Which leads to the ultimate moment in our passage, the peak of the conflict and controversy. Jesus states in verses 10 through 12, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. Jesus settles the controversy and proves his authority to forgive sin to everyone there by using his authority and power to heal the paralyzed man. This completely silences the scribes and anyone else who doubted what Jesus said to the paralytic. Immediately, the paralytic got up, picked up his mat, and walked out in front of everyone. And verse 12 goes on to say that they were all astounded and gave glory to God. Not one person in that jam-packed house could say anything against Jesus' claim to be God in the flesh. The king of kings was there in person, demonstrating his authority and his power over not just sickness, disease, and paralysis, but sin itself. And in this powerful statement, Jesus refers to himself for the first of many times as the Son of Man. This title is used over 80 times in the Gospels. It's one of Jesus' favorites. And Mark uses it 14 of those times. But what is its significance? It's twofold. First, it shows Jesus' humility in relating to humanity. God is referring to himself as the Son of Man. And second, it ties to a prophecy in Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, it says this, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Jesus takes this prophecy that the Jewish people have been waiting for centuries to be fulfilled in the coming Messiah, and Jesus says, that's me. The Son of Man is here. And he is establishing his kingdom that will never be destroyed. Our passage today lays a solid and mighty foundation for the divinity of Jesus, the proof that Jesus truly is God. For as the scribes said, who can forgive sins but God alone? The people crammed into that house and us today see firsthand that Jesus truly is God and has authority to forgive sin. Which leads to the final part of our passage today. The very last part of verse 12. No one has seen these things before. 
No one has seen these things before. Verse 12 says, As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Today's passage was filled with multiple extraordinary events. First, we have four guys carrying a paralyzed man up onto a roof, digging a hole through it, and then lowering him down into this house. Second, we see Jesus tell the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And then we see Jesus prove his authority to forgive sin by healing the paralytic so that he immediately gets up, picks up his mat, and walks out in front of everybody. In response to all of these astounding events, everyone there gave glory to God and said, we have never seen anything like this. And this is what we will continue to see throughout this Harmony of the Gospel series. That with Jesus, things like this have never been seen before. Because there's no one like Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of Man. He is God in the flesh. And Mark's hope, Matthew's hope, Luke's hope, and John's hope is that in seeing who he truly is, we might believe and have life, Jesus. So I have to ask the question, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If today you want to put your faith in him, please come talk to me. Come talk to one of our elders after service. We would love to pray for you and rejoice in your salvation. And for those of us who do believe, I urge us to reflect on what God has done on our behalf. Reflect on who Jesus is. And that he came to give his life as a ransom for many, for you and for me. May we go from here rejoicing in the greatest news and greatest gift. God forgives us of our sin. We are healed eternally. Let's stand together and pray. Oh, Father, you are so marvelous, so wonderful, so beyond our comprehension. God, rather than just healing the paralytic and moving back to teaching and preaching, Lord, you said something that shook the whole audience. You declared that his sins were forgiven. Lord, we see that Jesus has that authority. He is God in the flesh, Lord. And that he came to die so that we could have new life, so we, we could have this imperishable and undestroyable hope in you. That we have new life in you. God, I pray that we can dwell on your forgiving nature. That you have washed away our sins as far as the east is from the west. 
God, I pray that this good news can just well up inside of us and that it doesn't just stay with us, but that it is spread to everyone we know, that they can know the hope, the salvation that is found in you alone, that you have conquered sin and death. Lord, as we go from this place this morning, I pray that we are just rejoicing in you and your great salvation, that we are marveling at what wonderful things you have done on our behalf, and that we can just love you this week in whatever we're saying, whatever we're doing, Lord, that you can be glorified in all things. Pray in your name.